Welcome to West Virginia Uncovered, the investigative reporting podcast of West Virginia Statewide News. For more coverage of this and other news, visit wvstatewide.com. There are two sides to every story, and somewhere in between lies the truth. This old adage serves as a warning to be suspicious of the presentation of evidence, especially in situations that have life and death outcomes. Emotions run high in serious situations, and the views of what actually happened can be polarized. This emotional response leads us to the acceptance that the truth really does lie somewhere between the two views. Our justice system is built on the presentation of evidence presented by both sides to an impartial jury, guided by a judge whose knowledge of the law and wisdom provide a solid basis for a fair trial. But what happens when the system gets it wrong? Can a breakdown of the pretrial process have a butterfly effect on the trial proceeding before it even begins? In the case of Edward Jesse Dreyfus, that may just be what happened. Labeled the ball bat killer by the local newspaper, Edward Jesse Dreyfus, or Jesse to his friends, was convicted in 2013 of murdering Otis Clay Jr. in April 2012. Dreyfus is currently serving a life sentence without mercy in West Virginia's Northern Correctional Center in Moundsville. In June 2012, Huntington Police Detective Ryan Bentley testified before the grand jury and said, quote, On Monday, April 9, 2012, at approximately 0129 hours, an Edward Jesse Dreyfus forcibly kicked open and entered 938 Washington Avenue in Cabell County without permission. The residence is that of Otis Clay Jr. Inside Mr. Clay's residence, Mr. Dreyfus obtained a black aluminum baseball bat and struck Mr. Clay about the face, head, and body multiple times, causing the following injuries. A broken leg, a broken arm, four broken ribs, three broken fingers, facial fractures, and a major skull fracture. Mr. Clay was transported to the St. Mary's Hospital where he slipped into a coma, remaining in that state until he died from his injuries on May 2, 2012. End quote. The case proceeded to trial in October of 2013. Judge Paul T. Farrell presided with prosecutors Chris Childs, Corky Hammers, and Lauren Plymel with Public Defender Defense Counsel John Lashley representing Mr. Dreyfus. Multiple witnesses testified that Dreyfus attacked the victim with a baseball bat because Dreyfus believed the victim provided fake crack cocaine that Jesse purchased. One eyewitness to the attack, James Markham, testified, I seen him busting his head and brains and everything. I cleaned his brains and blood up, I did. Mr. Markham identified the baseball bat and then said, that's what beat his brains out. Another witness, Laura Malone, walked into the residence as Mr. Dreyfus was holding the baseball bat while standing over the victim. She stated that another individual attempted to subdue Dreyfus. I went to him. I took my shirt off. I wrapped it around his head. When asked if the victim's head was bleeding pretty badly, she said, the victim's attending physician, Dr. David Denning, testified that the victim's cause of death was multiple trauma due to assault. Injuries included cerebral concussion, left-sided rib fractures, right femur fracture, left elbow fracture, and left phalanx, which is a finger fracture. Dr. Denning stated that the victim suffered a traumatic brain injury. When asked if the victim's injuries were consistent with the injuries which would have been received by beating with a baseball bat, Dr. Denning replied, sure. 
Dr. Alan Mock, an assistant medical examiner for the state of West Virginia, performed the autopsy. Dr. Mock testified that the manner of death was homicide and that there was evidence of blunt force injuries to the head and extremities and thorax. At the conclusion of the four-day jury trial, Mr. Dreyfus was convicted of first-degree murder and burglary. He was sentenced to a term of life without mercy for his first-degree murder conviction and one to 15 years of incarceration for his burglary conviction. The problem is, Otis Clay Jr. had no head injuries. None of the actual medical records detailed these or any head injuries, nor did the autopsy. Jesse Dreyfus has adamantly denied his role in the attack of Otis Clay Jr. From prison, he has primarily represented himself in an attempt to overturn his conviction. He has claimed that the prosecution knew the testimony given was false and has even gone as far as petitioning the circuit court for the right to present the grand jury in an attempt to indict the police officer for perjury and the prosecutors for suborning perjury. The circuit court denied that petition, but Dreyfus appealed it to the state Supreme Court and won the appeal. He has also filed a writ of habeas corpus, which Cabell County judges all had to recuse themselves from. That case is now in front of Lincoln County Circuit Judge Jay Hoke. The last action in front of Judge Hoke happened in October, where both sides rested. Dreyfus is now serving as his own co-counsel with attorney Mark Plants of Kanawha County. We asked Mark Plants to explain the cases that are now before Judge Jay Hoke. Is there's two issues in front of the judge, right? One, one is a civil issue, and that deals with the habeas case, right? Habeas corpus is a civil proceeding. And the question there is a bunch of grounds that we apply, that, that we allege, but really it comes down to ineffective assistance of counsel. So um, the judge has to believe, and again, it's a, it's a civil case, so it's, it's a preponderance of the evidence that two things, that his lawyer fell below what the reasonable standard is for an attorney, and two, that that there was that Dreyfus was prejudiced by it. So you got to fall below the normal, ordinary standard of a lawyer, and that that mistake had to prejudice the defendant. That's true for all cases, right? So that's one part of it. And the in this case, uh, trial counsel or defense counsel at the time was was a guy named Lashley, and he. Uh, to his credit, quite frankly, uh, got down to the and, and it, this happens a lot more than people understand. Is got down to the last day of, of trial, the the all the evidence is already in. His entire defense is basically that uh, it's a causation defense, meaning this this victim died of a heart attack. We didn't cause the death, uh, and, and quite frankly, it was at the time it was a good defense because the the state's own medical expert agreed with that now he added a little bit to it but that was the gist of it that it's a proximate cause issue that we did not cause this death maybe this was an assault or, or of course he argued we didn't do it but maybe it was an assault if you believe we did do it it was an assault but it's not a murder because we didn't actually cause the death um problem with that was last day of trial they're doing jury instructions which again happens all the time uh and the prosecutor comes up with this law that, and this is all on the record. This is undisputed because Lashley put it all on, on, on the record. Um, comes up with a, with, a, with a law, this Jenkins instruction, this Jenkins case, um, which basically says that if you cause an injury uh, and that person uh, 
dies, you can be criminally responsible uh, for that death unless unless there was um, if if there was proper health care treatment. And I don't have the case in front of me, but that's the gist of it. Um, if I cause it, I can be criminally responsible for a death if if the victim receives proper health care treatment and ultimately dies. The defense of the entire case was was we didn't do it, but if we did do it, we didn't actually cause the death. And on the last day, you know, right before the jury got it, the got the evidence, got the case, this piece of law comes up and says, hey, it doesn't matter that you didn't cause the death. If you just caused the surgery and the person dies and the, and the, and the, the health care treatment was, it was proper, then you can be criminally responsible for that death and be guilty of first-degree murder. Well, that just totally annihilated the defense. So there's, you know, the law says you got to be, as a criminal defense attorney, you're supposed to know the law within your jurisdiction. So there's the mistake that 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 attorney didn't know that law existed. Uh, and, now, and then the question becomes, well, was it prejudicial? Um, and I think, you know, clearly it was for two reasons. One, um, you know, if if a jury, if the if the lawyer would have known that that was going to be the law, then he may have taken the plea. In fact, Dreyfus said, I would have taken the plea. All they had to do was prove it, prove the guy had surgery. Of course, they're going to do that. So, number one, he's prejudiced because he would have taken a plea. Number two, he's prejudiced because had the had the, def- the lawyer known the law, he would have done exactly what I did, simply follow the little breadcrumbs. Plants is a former prosecutor himself, and during this trial, he enlisted the help of an expert witness. This witness, Dr. Thomas Berger, is an experienced cardiac thoracic surgeon and has served as an expert witness across the country. Dr. Berger testified that the proximate cause of Otis Clay Jr.'s death was that either because his pacemaker was not functioning properly or because it was not managed properly, his pacemaker failed after surgery for his leg while he was under the hospital's care. And, and I'm a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. So I had to go find a doctor to look at the medical records and explain to me what happened. So if that lawyer knew that, that that was the law, he would have done that. He would have found an expert just like I did and and would have presented that to a jury. So that's the second way that he was prejudiced. So that's the first question in front of the jury or in front of the judge right now is, uh, you know, the habeas corpus. The question being, did, uh, was there, um, I don't want to use the word malpractice, but did did the lawyer's uh, conduct fall below the prevailing norms? That's the phrase. Um, number one, uh, and number two is, did it prejudice the defendant? And all of this is kind of looked through through this question. That's the way that I like to phrase it because it's easy. Is did he really receive a fair trial? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you know, if he was prejudiced, most of this, these types of cases that get denied are like, you know, things like, well, oh, you should have called this witness or you should have called that witness or you should have asked this question. Well, that, that might be prejudicial, but it really doesn't affect the outcome of the trial. It really didn't affect whether you had a fair trial or not. Um, the strength of, of our argument is that the defense attorney built his entire case 
on a faulty defense that turned out to be totally obliterated the last day of trial, right? He'd, and, and, and honestly, even the state was not aware, admittedly, you know, the, the, the prosecutor wasn't aware of that law until the last day of trial. So both the prosecutor and the defense were moving forward and they really didn't have a mean in the minds or, and there really wasn't a fair trial that, that, that Mr. Dreyfus got because his attorney um, was operating under a faulty understanding of what the law was and, 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 and would have tried it totally different um, had he known that law. I mean, of course he would have. I mean, who in the world would make that argument? No, you know, that they, they, you simply wouldn't. So that's the first part of it is, is the habeas part is did the, did the lawyer, um, was he ineffective since the counsel? Um, the second part of it is in the criminal case. Now, now that case is a, is a civil matter, so it's got a whole new number. But in the criminal case, if there is a, a new piece of information, there's a rule that says, hey, new evidence has come to light, and it has the, the potential of changing the outcome of the trial, and we want a new trial. You hear it all the time in, like, DNA cases, Right. You, you, you're someone's in prison and the, the DNA comes back that someone else's DNA is on there, or, you know, on the underwear or, or his turns out to be his DNA wasn't on the, the crimes. It wasn't at the crime scene. Well, this, I filed a motion for a new trial based on the new piece of evidence that we now have that neither the prosecutor or the defense counsel at, at trial looked into. And that is, was there proper health care treatment? Remember, that was an element in that, in that Jenkins instruction. If we caused an injury that caused a surgery and the victim dies during the proper, having received proper treatment, then I can be criminally responsible. Well, there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever taken whether the treatment was proper or not. It was never looked at, never investigated. So the expert that I hired, um, Let's see. Was he's a you know a board certified thoracic surgeon? Um, just all kinds of credentials. Just in terribly, terribly qualified. Great um, experience. Um, doesn't get any more qualified. Uh, you know, he tested. He wrote a report and testified that um, all of the the medical records indicate and actually prove not only was the treatment not proper that they committed malpractice. That's what his report So when said. you say that Otis Clay died as a result of medical malpractice, what exactly do you mean? Uh, you know, the, the victim had a, had a uh, pacemaker. And, of course, you know, he, the, the, the victim didn't have any records of going to the hospital for the past several years, didn't take care of himself. There was no no information about uh, any care that he had received. So when he shows up at the hospital, um, they do a minor little surgery on his on his leg. He has a broken femur, no concussions or anything like that. But the doctors were so worried about his heart that they said, "Hey, we want to we want a uh, a a cardiac specialist to look to look at him and see if he can survive, you know, the surgery." Well, there's no there was no indication one one of those tests would have been what's called an interrogation of that pacemaker. So, but there's no report that that was ever done, and even there's a handwritten note after the fact uh, for that to, after after the death occurred. And again, 
the victim survived the surgery. They were moving him off the table after the surgery. And um, Dr. Berger's testimony at trial um, and in his report is that um, either one or two things happened. Either um, the, the, the pacemaker never was, was tested and it never worked, and the evidence of the medical record shows it never fired. If, it's, if, if your pulse falls below a certain rate, then the, the, the strips will show. Uh, you can tell the difference in a regular heartbeat and a pacemaker firing. Well, this pacemaker never fired. So it was, they never tested it, and, and then it, it never worked. Uh, and they should have tested it before he had the surgery. Um, the other possibility was that they turned it off and never turned it back on, which apparently has happened sometimes um, once the surgery was over. So, um, but but the first scenario is what the doctor thinks happened. So, so there are the two scenarios. The, the, the second being new piece of evidence that that there was not proper medical treatment during the surgery. Um, so therefore the jury ought to be able to hear that new piece of evidence and we ask for a new trial. I think it's easy for the average person to listen to these issues and hear that all this testimony occurred during the trial that clearly was not true. You have witnesses, police officers, and doctors all saying that Otis Clay was beaten in the head with a baseball bat. Dreyfus even told us the jury required a break after hearing some of the testimony describing a witness cleaning up brain matter. What about the allegations that now the autopsy shows that testimony wasn't true? Grand jury testimony in front of, you know, is um, testimony that typically a police officer is testifying to. And that police officer is generally the lead investigator. But, it, you know, you, there is something we filed a motion uh, on the on the habeas. One of the arguments was um, fraud on a grand jury or improper indictment based on false testimony. Well, Anytime someone, you know, that's a very high standard. That's very hard to prove um, because because it's not, you know, you know, it could very well be that they're. Ha- and believe me, this happens more often than you would think. Is officers get on the stand, they read the report. Oftentimes, they're not even the. And I'm not taking up for anybody. I'm just telling you, I've done, I've indicted. I don't know how many thousands of people. And oftentimes, police officers get up on the stand, and sometimes it's their report. Sometimes they're reading from somebody else's report. And they simply regurgitate what's in the report. And I mean police report, not medical records. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that standard to prove, hey, um, you know, you, you're, see, he lied to the grand jury, uh, that standard's pretty high. Uh, that's pretty hard to prove that anybody is, is lying. Now, um, I will you know, you also mentioned about testimony at trial. Um, the testimony at trial it is what it is. In other words, if I witness someone getting hit with a ball bat and I see blood flying and I see uh, them squirming around, certainly I can think, my goodness, that is a piece of brain matter there. There's a, there's a blood clot. You know what I mean? I mean, it is, we can all watch an accident and we'll all see different things and we can come up and, and testify as to what we saw, none of which might be accurate. It just is the best of our recollection. And it's a jury's job to go in and figure out, okay, what happened here, right? I mean, now I would, I would presume on cross-examination, those witnesses were, would, would, be, would be questioned about, well, are you aware that in the CT scan there was no, no brain injuries, there was no concussion? In fact, you know, Mr. Uh, 
you know, Clay was awake, you know, arriving at the hospital, that he was conscious when the ER or, or the EMTs got there. All those are good fodder for cross-examination. But people get up on the stand and they're called, you know, fact witnesses. You're going to say whatever their, their personal knowledge is. Whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you kind of have to live with what they say. You can cross-examine them, but it is what it is. If they end up saying, yeah, I saw brain matter on the, on the, on the table, and it ends up being ketchup from the night before, well, it just is what it is. That's what they thought it was. Now, maybe they're lying. That's for a jury to decide. That's what a jury does. They're, they're the, you know, I don't tell a jury who to believe or what to believe. They find that out for themselves. You, I guess what I'm saying is, is, is all of those are, are, are uh, you know, would be typical things that, that would, people would file that, that, that you know, on, on habeas that, quite frankly, don't go, don't go real far. You know, I can't tell you how many trials I've had where three or four people will testify and, and one will say that, you know, he was shot, you know, in the right arm and the other one said shot in the left arm and the other one say he fell to the right and the other say he ran out of this door. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know what? Some of them are wrong. So, you know, he had to, he had to run, you know, half of them said he ran south, the other half said he ran north. Somebody in there is either, somebody's wrong and then it, the jury can kind of decide whether they're lying or who's right and lying and all that. That's what, uh, you know, that's, that's the crucible of the, of the jury and trials are for. Do you feel that the evidence you've presented to judge Hoke meets the burden of proof in the civil and criminal aspects of the current proceeding? Again, I run this through the most basic, you know, the, the basic framework is, did he receive a fair trial? And and I and I I can't see how he he received a fair trial um, under this scenario. I, I just don't see how that would happen um, when you've got a defense built on um, a proximate cause argument. When in fact your lawyer was wrong, and proximate cause ends up being irrelevant to the situation. Okay. And 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 and, and this adds to that when you look at the prosecutor's closing arguments. He talks, I mean, for, for pages about, he, he says it, instruction number 17, I want you to go back and I want you to read it. And, and it's exactly what I would have done if I was a prosecutor, because it was the weakest part of the case, and he harped on it. He said, go back and read this instruction. You know, Mr. Lashley doesn't want to talk about it, of course, in his closing, because he knows he's wrong. This instruction, and he, he, he reads it like five times. He reads it in his first opening or the, the beginning of his closing. And then of course the prosecutor gets a rebuttal close. So he closes it again in his rebuttal close. He's just hammering home the, the fact that the, whether this person died um, from a heart attack or from this beating is irrelevant that we, that, that Dreyfus caused the surgery and he died during surgery and he's guilty of first degree murder because of it. That, that was just, just, that goes to the factor of just how prejudicial was this mistake. If, if we're talking about what ends up being very prejudicial, so prejudicial, that's all the prosecutor talks about in his closing arguments. Unlike a normal case that, that you're talking about, oh, you know, a witness says something um, or a witness, uh, you know, you don't ask a certain question. Prosecutors don't spend 30 minutes talking about that in their closing because it it's not important. This mistake led to a very prejudicial result. The new piece of evidence, I, I again, I'm not a jury. I don't tell them what to believe. I just 
give them the facts and let them decide. But man, I can't believe that, you know, a, a doctor, orthopedic surgeon testifying that a man died due to malpractice as opposed to anything that, that, that actually survived the second surgery and then, and, and then died at the hands of mal, malpractice. Um, I got to believe that's a reasonable chance that a jury would come to a different conclusion. Certainly. So is there anything left to do before Judge Huck makes a ruling? I've filed my petitions. I've, I've put on my evidence. Dreyfus has testified. We had Dan Holstein, who is uh, who I, who's now the Boone County prosecutor, but he I hired him as an expert to testify that that the trial counsel, you know, his his conduct fell below the prevailing norms of not knowing the law in your jurisdiction. Um, so I've got an expert on that prong, and I got an expert on the fact that it wasn't proper treatment. So to recap, today, Edward Jesse Dryfuse remains in a jail cell in Moundsville, West Virginia, awaiting decisions on civil and criminal matters before Judge Jay Hoke. Attorney Mark Plants, an experienced prosecutor in his own right, believes that Dryfuse did not receive a fair trial in 2013 because the attorney then did not know the legal basis that the prosecution used on the last day of trial. He feels that the burden of proving the false testimony at trial and to the grand jury is difficult, but he's convinced and backed by the expert testimony of Dr. Thomas Berger, a renowned cardiac thoracic surgery expert, that the evidence presented at trial would have clearly shown Otis Clay Jr. died as a result of medical malpractice received at St. Mary's Medical Center in 2012, and not at the hands of an attack, and especially not at the hands of Edward Jesse Dreyfus. In the next episode, we will look more into what happened that fateful night that left Otis Clay Jr. dead and began the legal battles that continue more than a decade later. You've been listening to West Virginia Uncovered, the investigative reporting podcast of West Virginia Statewide News. For more coverage, visit us at wvstatewide.com.